Second Corinthians chapter eight, verse one says, moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing, imploring us with much urgency that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. I have a confession to make as we get into the study today. I have a lot of thoughts on some of the things we're going to look at, so I have no idea how this is going to come out, but you guys are gracious, right? At least four people will be easy on me. So we'll see. I got a lot of interesting thoughts here to share with you guys, a lot of things that I think are very pertinent and very biblically based. So as I said, this is a transitional study because we go from the end of chapter 7 into the beginning of chapter 8, and Paul kind of switches gears. Chapter 7 is the repentance chapter. If you remember, we talked about that last week. Paul had written this letter, this tense church in Corinth. They had a difficult relationship, a number of visits, a number of letters that have been written back and forth, some exchanges, a group there, maybe spearheaded by a single person that is sort of against Paul and Paul dealing with that. So he writes a harsh letter confronting them because he loves them, confronting them about some of the ways they are doing church. And he's worried about the letter, how it's going to be received. He sends the letter with Titus, a guy named Titus, one of his young ministry protégés. And then he waits and he waits and he waits to hear, uh, you know, the feeling of what's the result. Did they receive the letter? How did they receive it? Were they angry with Paul? Did they want to cut off relationship? And Paul finds out much to his great joy that they actually responded well to the letter. They repented. They changed their minds. They turned on their heels and went a completely different direction from how they'd been acting and behaving. They listened to Paul and things were good. And you know the relief of that, don't you? In a tense relationship, when things go well, when confrontation happens and conflict gets resolved, oh, it's such a good feeling. I don't know about you, but I labor over broken relationships. Some people don't care. Some people just walk away so easily from relationship. I can't do it. I'm a shepherd, man. I can't do that. These are sheep. These are people. These are friends. That's why I take time to clarify things because I want good communication and good understanding and good, healthy relationships. Because it turns out, Healthy relationships can be a real source of joy in our lives. So Paul, as we end chapter 13, he says, therefore, based on their repentance, based on their change, based on their diligence for him and their relationship with him and their desire to see him, his heart is just soaring. And he says in verse 13, therefore, we have been comforted in your comfort and we rejoiced exceedingly more for the joy of Titus because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. It's like they're having a big group hug. I mean, the Corinthians are happy. Paul's happy. Titus is happy. And they lived happily ever after. I love this chapter. I love this section. They rejoicing. Titus is rejoicing because when Titus went to Corinth, they were embracing him. They were embracing Paul. So he was refreshed. You know how it is to be refreshed by somebody else? Have you ever been refreshed by a person? You've just been feeling dry, discouraged, down, and someone shows up at your house and says, grab your shoes, get your jacket, we're going to the movies. We're just going to go out and get some coffee. We're just going to go for a walk. And they just encourage you. Do you know what I'm talking about? 
So Titus shows up fearful, like, I don't know what I'm walking into the lion's den here. I don't know what to expect from, are they going to chew me up and spit me out? So he just so rejoices because his spirit was refreshed by the Corinthians. For if in anything I have boasted to him about you, Paul says, I'm not ashamed. But as we spoke all things to you in truth, even so our boasting to Titus was found true. So Paul had really boasted. He had bragged about the Corinthians. He says, look, Titus, I know these people. They may be struggling. There may be some challenge, but these are good people. These are generally people that really want to seek the Lord. So Paul boasted. And then after Titus left, he said, man, I hope that's true. He was like, okay, Titus, they're great people. Oh, I hope they're great people. I hope they do what they should do. I hope they do what's right. But what stood out to me, and I'm going to belabor this a little bit, I'm going to give you a whole bunch of neurobiological information because we are going to appreciate together today that we are fearfully and wonderfully made by God. And we're made for joy. It's the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy. And as I look around in the life of the church in general, not just our church, but in the church, I just tend to see a lack of joy in a general sense. Now, there are some people very joyful, and I'm not saying you have to pretend you're happy. We'll talk a little bit about intrinsic happiness versus extrinsic happiness. Extrinsic happiness, what we call being happy, is uh, circumstantial. It's based on things that are going on in and around your life and things that are happening. Good things are happening. You have an extrinsic happiness. Intrinsic happiness, what we would call joy, is a sense of inner happiness that happens regardless of your circumstances. So in this instance here, it's a little bit of extrinsic happiness. The Corinthians are happy, Titus is happy, Paul is happy, everybody's happy. But notice that all this joy is about not materialism, but relationship. So it turns out healthy and mutually loving human relationships are a great source of joy, and we live in a culture of isolation. And we have at our disposal so many non relational solutions to the pain people experience because of design regarding loneliness and lack of purpose. So Paul says we've been comforted. That's the word encourage. Comfort is Latin for to fortify. Comfortus with fortification. It's to strengthen. The Greek word parakaleo is the same word used of the Holy Spirit, comforter. We know the Holy Spirit is our comforter. It has in its root to bring alongside of you. Now, you guys know, I've not been shy about it. I'm a granddad. And we've got our little one-year-old Sadie tootling around now and toddling around and she falls down. That's what happens when you're learning to walk. You fall down. And what does she want when she falls down? She wants to be comforted. She hurts. She wants to be comforted. Now, I could stand across the room and say, ah, you'll be all right. It's going to be okay. Get over it. Could do that. But what does she really want? You know it, moms and dads, the arms go up. That's why I don't get so upset when I see people raise their arms in church. Sometimes someone comes in and they just really need to be comforted. And just like a child, we put up our arms to God and say, God, I'm just looking for you to hold me close today. So she puts up her arms and that means come and pick me up. It means call me to your side. It means bring me close to you because in you, I find comfort. I find strength. I find an easing of my pain. That's God's plan for us. That's why the Holy Spirit is called the comforter. In our pain, God calls us close to himself by the Holy Spirit so that he can comfort us. Notice the next thing he says, verse 15, and his affection, speaking of Titus, 
his affections are greater for you as he remembers the obedience of you all, how with fear and trembling you received him. Therefore, here it is again, I rejoice that I have confidence in you in everything. So we have more rejoicing here in verse 16. We have a group of people that were broken over their disobedience, that with fear and trembling, they received Titus. And the result of that is Titus already had a heart for the people. Titus is in pastoral ministry. He's an intern. If you don't have a heart for people, you shouldn't ought to be in ministry. Can we agree on that? So he's already has a love for the Corinthian people. He's willing to go. But I like this verse 15, that word affections is that word we've talked about that means spleen or bowels, the, the root or the seat of the deepest, to the Greek mind, the deepest human felt emotions. So it would say, and Titus and his deeply affectionate emotions for you are greater as he remembers the obedience of you all. So there's this relationship that is fostering in Titus some deep emotions of love and affection toward these people, for the people in Corinth. And this is reciprocated. So we've agreed, and I think all of us would agree, we're fearfully and wonderfully made. God has created us with a biochemistry. There are chemicals coursing through your body right now. And some of you may be on psychiatric medications that help to alter your brain chemistry to address things like anxiety, to address things like depression. We are intimately chemically-based beings. I'm learning about this. I'm learning a ton about this right now, studying it. We have a area in our brain called, write this down. Okay, you don't have to write it down. You won't be quizzed on it in heaven. Striatum. The striatum is an area in your brain that responds to social connectedness. That's its job. It responds to being connected socially. Now, remember, your cell phone like this does not count as social connectedness. It involves eye contact, verbalization, body language. That's what we mean by social connectedness, communication that's directed face-to-face. So when you are disconnected, that part, the striatum, that part of your brain starts to feel hungry, starts to feel and get hypersensitive and experience the pain of loneliness. It's telling you, you need to be in community. And God's always made us that way. Now scientists are just delving in. They're discovering the way God made us. You ever been to the grocery store when you're hungry? Like, it's not good. It's dangerous for me to go grocery shopping when I'm hungry because all kinds of stuff jumps into the cart because my stomach and my brain are hypersensitive to my need for food. Therefore, I overdose at the grocery store because I'm hungry. Well, that's what happens in your brain. Your brain gets this hunger, so you're desperate because of this pain it creates for socialization to satisfy the hunger in your brain that you're experiencing, the hunger of loneliness. So enter the hormone oxytocin. It's a God-given neurotransmitter that's also known as the cuddle hormone. The striatum has receptors that when you are in social connected relationships, that they go to the striatum, they satisfy that hunger relationally speaking. Oxytocin is called the cuddle hormone. It's involved in pregnancy. It's involved in childbirth. It's involved in breastfeeding. And it's involved in sexual intimacy. And it's involved in social connectedness. So God's remedy for the fear and the pain of loneliness is community. He's always said that. He said, whatever you do, church, don't forsake the assembling together of yourselves. He says to us, love one another. Above all things, have fervent love for each other. So this is how things are meant to work. Oxytocin is also a powerful painkiller. 
So when you have oxytocin in appropriate amounts through social relationships, it helps deal even with physical and emotional pain. But now enter a culture of isolation. Enter a culture where people are scared of each other. They experience social anxiety. They can't get along. There's bitterness. There's grudges. There's anger. There's resentment. And we are losing so much of our social aptitude and finding non-relational fixes for the pain and the problem of pain in our lives. So we turn to social media. We turn to our cell phones. We turn to our computer screens. We watch hours of YouTube videos. We turn to drugs or alcohol. And you know the latest is the opioid addiction. And it turns out the problem isn't with opioids. The problem is with our social inaptitude. You see, you get pharmaceutical-grade opioids if you go to the hospital and get a hip replacement. But why doesn't everybody get addicted to it? Because what everybody's finding now, addiction is not a matter of a hook, a chemical hook. Why do some get addicted and some don't? All the research is showing that people that have a strong social network are much less likely to get addicted. Because the opioids, when a person takes opioids, they experience in a laser beam nuclear explosion kind of way, they experience what social connectedness gives you to experience. They experience the feelings of being nurtured, of being cared for, and of being connected. But they're not really connected. So then that wears off. So what do they do? They need more and they need more and they need more. And as they do research, you can look it up yourself. I'm not giving you all the details. The counties in our country that have the least social connectedness are the ones with the most problem with opioid overdose. Opioids are killing more people than drinking and driving now. It's huge epidemic. So you can do the research. I'll just give you the wrap up from an article I read called The Social Life of Opioids. It says, in essence, this is the last line of the article. In essence, if we want to have less opioid use, we may have to figure out how to have more love. Now, that's what the scientific community is learning, finally catching up with what God has always said. Now, the challenge for you and me is that when you feel the pain of loneliness, not to run to a non-relational solution like drugs or alcohol, but to start the rewiring of your brain happens because I'm going to choose, even though I'm scared out of my mind, I'm going to go to a Bible study. I'm going to go to men's breakfast. I'm scared out of my mind. But as you do it, you become, well, I've seen people come to this church and they'll sit out in the fellowship hall because, man, they're scared of people. And then over time, they start to creep in here. And over time, relationships start to build and their brain is being rewired and they're finding comfort and they're finding satisfaction in social relationships and loving, mutually caring social relationships. That's why the body of Christ is so important. Who else is going to tell you forgive? Who else is going to give you the skills and the ability to carry them out with, by the power of the Holy Spirit to maintain long-lasting, healthy human relationships? This is the expertise of the body of Christ. And I hope we don't fail at it. So all of that is a little bit of a side note. Now, don't forget about the striatum. We're going to come back to that little part. So we transition into chapter eight after my little aside. One more pause, and then we'll get into chapter eight. I bring this up because we have got to combat you. You, if you want to live a healthy, spiritual, emotional life, you have to combat the culture you're steeped in because it is toxic more toxic than ever in the past history of our world. And unless you think differently, you will suffer along with everybody else. Unless you figure out why you're scared of people. 
unless you figure out why you experience social anxiety, unless you figure out why you're maintaining bitterness, why anger and grudges keep you away from people, why you tend to pull apart from people that you're angry with instead of running to them for reconciliation. You got to figure that out. God is here to help you. That's his specialty, reconciliation. Remember chapter five? We are begging people. God is begging you through Christ to be reconciled to him and hopefully be reconciled to each other. And then the world looks on and goes, how do you do it? How do you Christians do that? That's why I make a point. And I'm just using and seeing that in the relationship between the Corinthians. Paul could have said, look, you Corinthians, we had a bad visit. Forget it. I'm out of here. I'm moving on to another church. I don't care about you guys. I'm unplugging from you. But Paul wasn't willing to do that. He labored to work with them and experience the joy that came from working through their strained relationship. Are we together, church? Okay, this is my pastor's heart coming out. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 1, Paul switches gears, a new topic. Moreover, brethren, he says, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. Ah, Macedonia. Where in the world is Macedonia? Well, it's in northern Greece. So Corinth is in southern Greece and Macedonia is in northern Greece. You've heard of the church of Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea. Those are the only churches we know of that would be in that area of Macedonia. So those churches, Paul holds up as a example to the church in Corinth. Now, let me give you some quick kind of 30,000 feet background. Paul had a burden for two things in his heart. He had a burden to relieve great financial and pressing financial distress that had happened in Jerusalem and to the church in Jerusalem. And the second thing he had a desire for, a burden for, was to tear down walls between people from different cultures, specifically Jew and Gentile. You couldn't have any more different people on the face of the earth than Jew and Gentile. And they always struggled to get along. And Paul's heart was to, that God had dissolved the walls and Paul wanted people to dissolve the walls that God had already dissolved. So those are his two burdens, that relieving the financial stress in Jerusalem and tearing down walls between Jew and Gentile. So Jerusalem, the Jerusalem church, where the church started, day of Pentecost, that's where the church was born. Jerusalem is the mother church. They were experiencing a couple of things that caused them to be in such a financial distress. They were in a severe famine. We can't even comprehend this because, you know, we're just so used to going to Walmart and there's a gazillion items. I don't like grocery stores because I'm a hard time with decision making. There's so many types of cereal. Do I want that one? Do I want that one? I don't know. I don't know. Just give me one thing. Just give me one thing. That's just your pastor talking. So a severe famine then causes agricultural problems. Then there's not groceries available. And this was a huge stress for them. They also, because they were Christians and had been in many ways ostracized from the Jewish community when they became Christians, they experienced social isolation. They weren't welcome. Some of you have experienced that in your families. You become a Christian, nobody wants to talk to you anymore. All of a sudden you feel a little ostracized in your family because they all want to be drinking at their Christmas party and you kind of don't go along with that. So they call you the Bible thumper. You're the self-righteous person because they feel guilty and you make them feel guilty. So there's a social isolation And some speculate that if you remember back to the early days of the church, after Pentecost, all these people that had come there and decided to hang out because revival was happening, 
Well, they sold their land and they sold their goods so they could provide for anybody as they had need. Remember that, Acts chapter two? But some say that by this time, that money from the lands they'd sold and the care for each other, the social experiment, the money had run out. So now people were in this famine, there's social isolation, and there's resources that have been dwindling. And now this church is in a crisis. So Paul's plan is a disaster relief collection, much like we may see coming down our road for the Bahamas. We see a group of people whose lives are decimated by a storm. And you'll know this will start once they clear out, kind of figure out what's going on, the word will go out and help will start to arrive as it's able. But for Paul, it wasn't a hurricane disaster. It was a famine disaster. And so he's gathering this disaster relief collection from the Gentile churches in Europe, from Greece. So it's Jewish people in trouble and it's Gentile people. He's saying, hey, you need to help your Jewish brothers and sisters. And he was going to take this to them to aid them in their time of need. Notice it was not for Paul's personal ministry use. Paul didn't say, hey, church, I need to take a collection because my helicopter engine died. And I need to get to all my important places. It wasn't about I'm in need. Nothing to do with Paul. He was so careful. We've been so careful. And I promise you, we don't talk about money every week here. Because some of you have been to churches where we got to build this thing, we got to build that thing, so it's stewardship time again. And there's a whole series on stewardship. And behind that, it's pointed to get you to give to that thing. And we have tried so hard over the years. We don't pass an offering plate. We don't have pledge funds. We don't have fund drives. We don't do gimmicks and things like that. Paul would have avoided all of that. Look, here's what's going on in the church. If you want to contribute, great. If not, no problem. That's up to you. So it wasn't for his personal ministry, wasn't for a building project. Not that that stuff is inherently wrong, but notice that Paul tried to really steer clear of that. See, the church had promised to help earlier, but then their relationship with Paul got strained. So now here's the transition. They've repented. Everybody's rejoicing. Paul says, oh, everybody's happy. Let's talk about money again. Now that their relationship is strong and everybody's happy, he's going to take two chapters, chapter eight, and chapter nine, to discuss this disaster relief offering that he's taking to Jerusalem. In the midst of all that, we'll get some technicality specific to the situation, but in the midst of all that, we're going to learn some really, really important truths about generosity. So a couple of quick questions. How many of you have ever made a financial decision you regret? (laughs) I think almost every hand could go up. You know, it was, I spent too much on a house or on a car. I failed to put money away when I was young. I co-signed for a relative who bailed on the loan. I gave too much to help someone who abused my generosity. We've all said, ah, you know, we've made a financial decision and then we regretted it. How many of you, I wonder, would like to be more generous? How many of you said, I think I could be more generous. I think maybe I should be more generous. See, we're so busy blaming the government. I talked to a person in my life that was complaining about the Trump administration, complaining about the government. The government should do more for helping the poor. The government should do more for helping this group. And I said, what are you doing to help the poor? And the conversation changed directions really fast. But to that person's credit, as a result, being convicted about that, putting their money where their mouth was, they went down to the store, bought some gift cards to have with them to hand out to the homeless when they see them. So they took it to heart. The question is, what stops you from being more generous? Is it that you feel that people should help themselves? Do you fear that people can't be trusted with the money that you give them? 
Do you feel like you just can't afford to be more giving? Turns out financial decisions are more linked to emotions than to your bank account. Let me give you this example. How do you feel around tax time? When you find out you owe more taxes and you thought you'd paid them all, but then tax man comes is actually you owe more. How does that feel? Nah. Are you ornery for like a week after that? Bite people's heads off. I love to go down to the tax office just smiling because it's different. And I joke with the ladies behind the window. I'm dying inside, but here's what's happening on the outside. How do you feel when you realize you owe more tax money versus getting the information that you just won the lottery? How'd that make you feel? Pretty good, right? Even just thinking about it, oh, the lottery. Yeah, what could I do with that money? So we recognize there's a connection. Money is not the root of all kinds of evil. The love, the emotional attachment and acquisition and selfish expenditure of money is what is the root of all kinds of evil. Have you ever worried about money? Ever been anxious about money? Don't lie to your pastor now. We all have. So I think this is really, really important for us to understand and notice that it's not connected to, hey, we have this thing we're doing and yes, we're paving the driveway. Yes, we're in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Isn't that the wonderful thing about teaching verse by verse? Like nobody goes, hey, you're just preaching that because you're paving the driveway. You're trying to squeeze money. No, no, no. This is, this is just where we are. So you want to blame anybody? Blame God. It's between you and him. <laughs> so he says again, moreover, let's pay attention to this Macedonian church. We make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the Macedonian churches. Uh, Berea, Philippi, and Thessaloniki. What Paul sees in them, man, it is nothing but a picture of the grace of God. When you see takers turn into givers, when you see people give when they really can't afford to give, that's the grace of God. I mean, there's no human explanation for that. God has touched these people's lives with his grace and it has produced something practical and real in them. And Paul is so blown away by it and he sort of holds them, dangles them like a carrot before the Corinthians. He's saying, in essence, if these people can do it, Corinth, you can do it. Because the Corinthians were wealthy. Corinth was a wealthy city. It was new money. It was Silicon Valley money. So there was ostentatiousness. There was a lot of wealth. They were at a crossroads of commerce. The city had been destroyed, rebuilt by the Romans. And man, it was Silicon Valley mixed with Las Vegas. It was Sin City and Silicon Valley all at the same time. And they're the ones lagging behind in their giving. So he holds out to dissolve their excuses, the Macedonian church. Well, here was the grace. In a great trial of affliction, that's usually not the time I'm feeling generous, the abundance, the superabundance, the surplus of their joy and their deep poverty abounded exceedingly in the riches of their liberality. What a sentence Paul puts together. I mean, this would make any English teacher smile. He's just heaping adjectives on adjectives, and he's saying, if this group of people can give, Anybody can give. Look at their situation. These are the people that could have said, should have said, we can't give. We're in need ourselves. We're in no place to help out. Paul, we love you. We'd love to help out. But man, we just can't. Times are tough for us. They could have said that, but they didn't. Instead, we get this cool little math equation. You ready for this? Affliction plus joy plus deep poverty equals extreme generosity. That's crazy. That's the grace of God. That's not normal, is it? What would your equation be? 
If you had to write out an equation for generosity, what would it be? Abundance plus contentment equals generosity. I don't know what you would write, but this would not be it, would it? (laughs) Number one, they were going through a great affliction. We talked about that. What was it? I have no idea. Probably some sort of persecution. I mean, they are the church after all in these areas where there was, Paul had been imprisoned there in Philippi and beaten there. So there's persecution. But notice that they had an abundance of joy. Could you say that? Do you look at your life and say, I got an abundance of joy. Once some my joy, I got an abundance. I got enough for you too. Wouldn't it be great to say about your life, I have an abundance of joy. What would you rather have? An abundance of money or an abundance of joy? Who says joy? Who says money? <laughs> I'm thinking money, but I ain't saying it because everybody raised their hand for joy. And I'm smarter than that, Pastor. <laughs> They had an abundance of joy, so they were grateful. How did they have an abundance of joy? God did it. They had a connection with God. You'll see why they have an abundance of joy in a few minutes. And their deep poverty. Now, it really says that they use the word, Paul uses the word for deep. He uses that word, bathos. That's where we get the bathosphere, that vessel that goes down to explore the deepest parts of the ocean. It means deep, just like it says here. They didn't have just everyday poverty. They didn't just have just some minimal poverty. They had deep poverty. And yet, they were richly generous. A number of years ago, I watched a very moving documentary called Emmanuel's Gift. Anybody ever seen that? You might like it. It's great family. Emmanuel Iboa from Ghana is a young man born with a deformed leg. So really, in that culture, you would basically be relegated to begging your whole life. That would be your life. You're going to beg your whole life. That was the culture. But his mom said, don't you dare beg, you're going to work. And he would take his crutches and he'd walk to work. Showed up at a shoe repair shop. The guy tried to run him off because he thought he was there to beg. And he said, no, I'm here to work. And you know what? He made half as much money working as he would have begging. He would have made twice as much money. But his mom taught him a huge lesson. That you're going to work instead of just begging. And he was very, very poor. So He ends up sending a letter to the Disabled Athletes Foundation. He says, I want to change the stereotype of handicapped people in Ghana. I want a bike so I can ride it across my country and raise awareness that people with deformities and handicaps don't have to beg. So he does. They give him a bike and he does. He becomes a hero and he gives back. Instead of moving to America and buying a big mansion, he goes back to Ghana and he takes wheelchairs for people there. And Oprah Winfrey is the one who kind of narrates the story. And it says this in the trailer, Emmanuel's gift is the story of a young man who had nothing and gave everything. Well, that was the story of the Macedonian church. They had nothing and gave everything. It's the story of the widow who Jesus and the disciples watch as she puts money into the treasury and all the rich people are there giving out of their abundance. She gives out of her poverty. And Jesus says, that woman, that woman gave more than everybody else put together because she gave out of her poverty and not out of her abundance. God, he cooks the books differently than we do. Brazilian businessman Ricardo Semler said, if you get to the end of your life and you decide it's time to give back, maybe you kept too much along the way. He's an advocate of giving along the way. Ephesians 4, one of my favorite passages. I say that about a lot of passages, don't I? Because they're all my favorites. Ephesians 4, let him who stole steal no more part of Christian culture. Stop stealing 
Instead, get a job, let him work so that he has something to save and take vacation and put away in the retirement account. Not that that's wrong, but that's not what it says. Let him who stole steal no more rather than work with his hands what is good so he has something to give to him who has need. See, we got to redefine why we work. I owe, I owe, so off to work I go. But instead, God says, working gives you an opportunity to have for yourself and to help others. It's radical. Now, what are some ways to give? It could be financial. It could be through the church. It could be one-on-one. It could be through giving services you would normally charge for. It could be giving an item you would normally sell. Something there would be a monetary exchange. So you take a loss of that monetary exchange and you give it away rather than sell it. So those are all different ways that you can help someone who has need. You bring in groceries. I mean, there's tons of things you can do. Look at verse three. Paul says, for I bear witness, I'm telling you that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing, imploring us with much urgency that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. Paul says they gave not just to their ability, they gave beyond their ability. And Paul says, and I didn't twist their arm to do it. It was no gimmicks. It was no three times passing the offering plate. No, somebody's got a million dollars in here. Someone's got a thousand dollars and we're going to wait here till they give it. None of those church stupid gimmicks. Paul didn't have to. He said, these people are desperate to give away, to help this church, to give away their money. You see, interestingly, the rich might give more monetarily, but less proportionally. It's been documented well. The poor give more proportionally. Why is that? Well, on one level, it's compassion. Poor people know what it's like to be poor. And they know what it's like to not have food on the shelves, to not have a pantry, to not have money in their pocket. So when poor people hear about someone else who's poor, they're moved with compassion. My favorite story, Mother Teresa in Calcutta finds out of a family who is starving. The kids, I think it was five children, have the signs of starvation. Their bellies are bloated. Their eyes are sunken. They're looking very hungry. And so she goes out, she secures 50 pounds of rice, brings it back to the mother. And the family, of course, is very excited, very happy. And the mother does something very interesting as Mother Teresa watches. She takes the grain and pours it out on the counter. She cuts it in half, divides it, puts half in her sari, in her gown, bundles it all up and leaves. Well, 30 minutes later, she comes back with no grain. And Mother Teresa is kind of scratching her head. She says, where did you go? And the woman said, we have neighbors that are poor also. I mean, I can't say I would have done that. What would you have done? I'd have been like, well, save this for later. But the thought of helping someone else who also had need. Money, another reason why the rich tend to be less generous is money clouds our vision. And money can be connected to our image, our identity, our lifestyle. The rich can tend to think, I am what I have. So people that have nothing are nothing. I have things, therefore I must be something. And we always live just a little above our means. We create lives that are complicated and take high maintenance financially. And therefore, we're not as free to give as we were when we were a little poor. I bet you if I asked some of you, you might say, you know, when I had less, I was a little happier. You remember, I told you to remember the striatum. It turns out when you give, they've found out, and this is nothing new. You'll know this already. That once your basic needs are met, more money does not increase happiness at all. Once your basic 
food, clothes, shelter. Once your basic needs are basically met, more money, more stuff does not increase happiness. But you know what does? Generosity. And guess what part of the brain lights up when you're generous? That striatum that's connected to social connectedness. Turns out when you help someone else who's in need, because there's always someone poorer than you. The poorest person in here, there's always someone worse off than you. So a suggestion, find someone worse off than you and help them. Just find somebody worse off than you. We gave away as a church $44,500 last year benevolently to help people in need. And we've built some wonderful relationships through that. Not always, but when we are generous, when we give to help someone else to relieve their situation, we agree to live at a little lower level so they can live at a little higher level and it builds a bond. And that part, that social part of our brain lights up and is happy. And we experience the oxytocin release. And guess what we experience? Happiness. I'm just giving you information. In James chapter two said, suppose you see a brother or a sister that's without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and be well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it for you or them? In the same way, faith by itself is not accompanied by action is dead. I'm just trying to give you guys good information so you can make good choices. Because look what Paul said. He said, not just freely willing, they were imploring us. And the thing I want to pick up on is that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministering to the saints, the relationship, the joint participation when someone else is in need, that we participate together and it breeds and brings a connection that brings ultimately greater happiness. Generous people are just more happy. The final verse, verse five, and we'll close here, says, and not only as we had hoped, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. That was another secret to the Macedonian church. They gave themselves to the Lord first. If you don't give yourself to the Lord, but you feel obligated, pushed, how many of you have ever given out of obligation? You've been at a church where you just got pushed, coerced, guilted into giving. That's no good. Then you get resentful. But if you give yourself to God and it's between you and God, then generosity comes easier between me and God. My reward isn't from you. My reward is from God. They gave themselves to the Lord. It was about their hearts. And then to us, by the will of God. So we urge Titus that as he had begun, verse six and seven, sorry, this is where we're ending. So he would also complete this grace in you all as well. But as you abound in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all diligence, and in your love for us, see that you abound in this grace also. So Paul's encouragement to the church, my encouragement to this church, we abound in so much. And my experience with you guys, let me just tell you this, you're doing it. Can I just say that to Calvary Chapel? You're doing it. Whenever a need comes across, man, it's met instantly. So I want to say it's a pleasure to pastor this church. It's a pleasure to see a group of people willing to be generous and relieve people's pain when they come to know about it. So don't leave feeling beat up, feeling guilted. Hey, if you don't give anything to anybody, you should feel convicted. And you should pray about that. You should take that to the Lord. But man, God is good, isn't he? We have a generous father. And he wants his children to have that same generosity. 